what is off the groove? It means you've blown the line or you're pushing the limits a little bit too far or just maybe you might be looking for a faster way around the racetrack. Off the Groove with Scotty Dubler. Friday, April 17th, 2020, episode number 128. I was going to say TGIF, but it feels like every day is Friday to me right now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I agree. I don't even think days of the week matter anymore. Every day seems like, I wouldn't say a weekend because I'm still working during the week, but it, it just seems like every day is just a day. It doesn't, I don't know. It's kind of weird when you don't have to get up and go anywhere or you don't have to get up and book a flight or figure out where you're going in a couple of days or pack a suitcase. I'm just, I don't know, everything just has blended together for me. I mean, I've got, uh, you know, the podcast we do, so that, that kind of gives me something to do. And then now I'm doing the, the AFT show. Uh, so that's kind of fun too, but it's just like, I don't have anything regularly to look forward to. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have distractions to help you through it for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely throwing. I mean, I don't have to get up and drive into work every day. I dig that. Um, and I got the full time job in this. It's it's definitely keeping me busy between the two podcasts and trying some game fun game show, which uh, you're going to be a part of, whether you realize it or not. Have we talked about this yet? Yeah, you kind of already teamed me up with my buddy Sammy Sabedra, but I just—that's yeah. all I know. I don't know when it's happening. I don't know if it's really happening. I oh, it's I just, really happening. Know. It's gonna happen. We've already got episode one in the can. Jared Vandercoy and Brandon Brandon Robinson. I'm not giving away. I'm not giving away any uh, secrets on who won, but they definitely competed in a, in a flat track Jeopardy game, and it was epic. And they're, and they're really good friends too. So I think that'd be fun to, to go against some of your good friends. And, you know, they were on the same team for a little while. And, and when Jared goes to Florida, he stays down there with Brandon and Ashley. So it's pretty cool. Absolutely. And, uh, and they're both pretty, they're both a lot more knowledgeable than I thought they would be. Um, you know, Jared watches a lot of old race videos and Brandon knows his history for sure. So it was, it was a very close game down to the wire for sure. And very entertaining as well. So who comes up with the questions? Well, for the first one, it was kind of a, a mix of me, Corey, and Jake. Um, but we have someone extra special for your episode, which is going to be episode two, Flat Track Jeopardy deal. Okay. Uh, Mr. Burt Sumner is going to be <laughs> coming up with the questions. I, I had to find somebody that could write questions for Sammy Sabedra, Scotty Dubler, Jake Johnson, and Corey Texter. And, and the only option would be Burt Sumner in the history of Migos. So... It, now you just let the cat out of the bag. So it's me and Sammy versus Jake and Corey. Yeah. Is that, there's, okay. there's no cat right. out of the bag. That's 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 in stone. That's going right. to happen for, for the second installment of Flat Track Jeopardy. They don't know the questions. No, I'm not giving Bert. away. Me and Bert are the only one. Well, the rest of the history, history amigos. But, uh, do, I need, do I need to start studying? You and Corey are trying to get hints, and I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. It's going to be epic. Uh, there's there's something big on the line though, so you have to win. So I would say yes, study. But it's it gives people a little history, you know, learn your history, uh, a little knowledge, flat track knowledge, and it's fun and exciting. Do you want to hear what's on the line? It was Corey's idea, and I think it's great. So is it a title? No. So is, is it a crown? You well, it is. It's so it's the two podcasts competing, right? We've had Sammy on this uh, podcast a couple times, so I guess we consider him part of the Off the Groove family, of course. So right. uh, so it's essentially Off the Groove versus Tank Slapping Podcast. Uh, and the loser of the competition has to have a guest chosen by the winner. Ah. <laughs> so the winner chooses a guest for the pod, for the competing podcast. All right. 
Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. We could come up with something really interesting for, I'm, for Tank I'm gonna, Slap, I'm, I'm sure. Gonna, I'm going to start thinking more about that <laughs> than I am about the answers. Right? <laughs> well, don't get stuck yeah. on that. You have to get the answers right and enough of those right. To, and it's okay. Jeopardy too. This is the thing with Jeopardy, right? You you buzz in and you get a wrong answer, right. you lose that exactly. money. Yeah, right. So right. it's going to be interesting. I, I've got to finish editing the first episode and get that out there. But regardless, you guys are locked in. I told Sammy he, he hasn't even been able to sleep since I told him. Apparently, uh, he's he's definitely hitting the books and studying. So I don't know. Just brush brush up on your stuff for sure. Okay. Enough about that. I guess that's the, really the only thing going on there, right? Yeah, there's nothing going on. I mean, we did have the uh, the, the AFT show episode two last night with Robbie Bobby and Dalton Gautier, and it was uh, it was pretty cool. I had a lot of fun. I think Rob's running a daycare and a motorcycle uh, academy and uh, working in a motorcycle shop. So there was a whole lot. Go- and he's raising goats now. So there's a whole lot going on. And and Morgan Mishler's in the background kicking his feet around. It was just I was going to say Merg made a, a little cameo, and so did uh, I guess some new character, Mini Dalton or Tiny Dalton or Baby Dalton or something like. What was that all about? I think I think it's Baby Dalt or something like that. He uh, and I don't know where this started, but I've seen a few people have these little spoon figures, like when they're stranded all alone, and it was like a spork, and it had little arms and stuff like that, and he's calling him Baby Dalt. Interesting. And that's, you know, that's Robbie Bobby and, and he does things his way and he's a little out there. Those boys, those boys like to keep it interesting and there's never a dull moment around there. Um, no, it's super cool. I love, I love what, uh, AFT is doing. I thought that they even got a sponsor for this one. So that's good. Keeping, giving some sponsors some love and, uh, integrating the videos with all that deal. So it's, it's cool to have some kind of content and, uh, see and hear what the hell's going on with those teams while, uh, while we have this downtime for sure. Yeah, right now we're just planning on one a week where we might ramp it up and might have two a week. We'll just have to wait and see how things unfold. But, uh, yeah, just bringing something to the fans, uh, keeping flat track relevant. Uh, I know a lot of other series are doing that, too. And a lot of people are just getting on social media just uh, just to have fun and to do something. Um, what else did you do this week? Anything interesting? Nope. Nothing. Nothing? I've got a, I've got a list of movies. As I watch one, I mark it off. And uh, you know what? That's it. Good stuff. I just we just got done interviewing Brad Baker for TSP, so that'll be cool to hear from hear from the bullet. There's a a big news announcement that he dropped that I'm not going to leak on here because he dropped it on there. I want to be right. fair. Anybody who listens to our podcast obviously listens to that one as well. So uh, tune in to hear what uh, Brad Baker's got going on, breaking news. So that's cool. I'm also working with Rhonda and Dave Waters uh, on a project for Madonna TT. That's super cool. Wow, what are you gonna you gonna drop some you gonna give us some more hint or is that all you're gonna throw out there? No, it's super cool. It's just a little uh, question and answer series. She's starting with uh, the riders of Medina TT. I think they're planning on talking to all the all the championship riders for each series, all the way up from the youngest to the oldest. But yeah, it's super cool. Man, you're just getting involved in everything. A couple of podcasts, a couple of. Uh couple different things going on dude i told you my Je- jeopardy <laughs> my new life goal is to uh, make a career making flat track content so i don't know how i'm gonna make that happen but baby steps i guess so how's the e-racing league going i mean i haven't seen uh, any of the standings or anything right now how's it going there's actually standings for the they actually started another series on the xbox so there's rossi which has a couple tracks that are flat track and then right. there's supercross three which is obviously a supercross game, but it has a track builder, so you can build TTs. The only difference is you have to end with a jump, which 
no TT and flat track ends with a jump and the bikes are set up a little different. You know, you don't kick out a leg in turns and the ruts and all that, but they actually have two separate series on the Xbox side. Corey got some sponsorship. Uh, He's got a helmet from Bell and some other things. So we're going to actually, we're not going to do like a five race series like the Xbox is. We're just going to do one event, winner take all. Yeah. Wow. For that helmet. So hit me up and uh, I'll give you all the information you need to get on board for the uh, PlayStation. If you have an Xbox, then there's a, a group for that as well. But uh, there's, they're still gaming, man, every weekend. There's some kids that get on there every night and run laps. It's kind of crazy. Well, they got to practice just like real racers do. You got to practice, practice, practice. That's how you get faster. I'm telling you, one of my goals is to get it to a point where we can have like four streams going at once and you in the middle on camera, just call on the race. We got to do that. <laughs> You don't have to put me on camera. You just put my voice out sure, there. Sure, that'll needs, work. Nobody needs, to, nobody needs to look at me. Either way, it'll be fun. Um, something to do. Keep us busy. I, st- I still have a face for radio. He was born with it. <laughs> All right, let's get into this week's episode because it's a doozy. Oklahoma's own Ronnie Jones. You've been wanting to do this one for a while, and uh, and we've just tried to figure out the right time to do it. And uh, I figured, you know, during quarantine's the best time to do it. Captive well, audience, that. all that. Well, we... Yeah, we did it for a couple of reasons. One, because I knew it was going to be long because <laughs> I, I like talking to Ronnie. Ronnie likes talking about everything. And what I like about Ronnie is he elaborates on everything. He remembers like I'm sure you could ask him what gearing he was running when he won his first ever Grand National. And he would tell you and he'd probably tell you what air pressure and he'd probably tell you what the fork rake was. He could tell you every bit of that. So, you know, it's going to be his answers might be a little bit long. But it's going to be good. I'm completely fine with that, dude. I I, I know very little about Ronnie Jones because, you know, I'm still year four. I'm still kind of new to everything, and I definitely don't know the history. So I think it's great to talk to to an older rider that, you know, he's still racing, too. So it's not like he's he hung he's hung up his still shoe like 20 years ago. He's he's still getting out there and racing. I don't know what the deal is going to be with this year with the whole you know, situation, but I'm, I'm sure we'll talk to him about that. But, I mean, he was just racing and and competing in main events last year which is insane yeah he's he's incredible and he's in he's in better shape now i think possibly than even when he was racing i think i think the level of competition uh the fitness level is there you know they're watching what they're eating now and you know back in the day when i went to the races they'd be smoking a cigarette not ronnie but they'd be smoking a cigarette put the cigarette out put their helmet on and go racing they didn't train you know anything like what they do nowadays so it's it is incredible that he's out there still making main events still you know finishing you know top 10 around the top 10 uh, against these these kids that are half his age or even more than half his age back when men were men and raced on dirt wait they still do that <laughs> well let's give him a call let's do it hello dr jones to you doll what are you doing, short round? Nothing. What are you doing? I uh, just uh, came in off uh, off my bicycle ride. Yeah? Did you, did you set a new track mm-hmm. record or anything? No, you know, I had looked like I had some segments, you know, that were, were uh, I think, my second best time on a couple of the segments that, that we ride on. So we were, we were pushing hard tonight. Right on. How many people did you go ride with? Um... Well, tonight was probably the biggest group, you know, ride with a group of guys. In fact, uh, I did an interview last year. I can't remember if it was on your show or something else, but I, um, I mentioned that, you know, I was working out with the a trainer, you know, to stay in shape for racing, uh, right. guy, Angus Scholl that, that Austin Fortner and Benny Bloss and 
others uh, use, you know, for their off-bike trainer. And these guys that I ride with, and Todd and Jeff Lee and a bunch of guys, they'll beat the hell out of me because I didn't mention them, you know, because I, yeah. I, I, I've been riding with them, you know, for years now, you know, and they're uh, competitive guys, you know, and so they, they push you know, they, they lean on each other all the time as far as, you know, keeping everybody's pace up. So they, they, you know, they've helped as much as anything probably keep me in shape for riding. So. Right on. How, how far did you go? How far did you ride? Uh, we rode about 20 miles tonight. We just, it was uh, about a little under an hour. We averaged about 22, 22 miles an hour tonight. Wow. And, uh, wow. usually we're in the 20, you know, between, we're, we're usually averaging right around 20 to 21. You know, tonight was a little faster because we had, uh, you asked me how many we had. We had a, um, so how does Scott too hottie, Cheyenne? Hi. Say it louder. Hi, Shy. Hi, Shy. Said, Hi, Shy. Yep. Um, <laughs> we had uh, tonight, there was probably... Hmm, maybe 14, 14 people. Wow. Is there drafting going on? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, ah. it's, you know, we're, we're riding, you know, two by two by two, you know, about, about seven rows back, you know, and we just alternate the lead, you know, just like they do, you know, in a, and so, yeah, we, we, you know, ride, we use, you know, we ride almost every night if the weather cooperates so, or every day. Uh, and then on the crazy. weekends, you know, we usually do 20, 30 miles, you know, a night. And then on the weekend, you know, we might do 40 or 50 miles. Well, you're, you're making me tired just talking about it. Can we uh, talk about some motorcycles or something? Absolutely. Yeah. What do you, <laughs> what do you want to talk about? Man, I got, yeah. I got a lot to talk about. I know we've known each other. I, I was trying to think about how long we've known each other earlier. And I know it's been at least 30 years. Uh, Graham and, and Pa have known you probably at least 40 years. So it, it means either we're getting old or we've known each other since we were born or something. But I've been wanting to have you on here for a long time and, and just you know get to know Ronnie Jones and talk about some of the things that you've done in your life. Because uh, I, I, I don't know where we can start or stop, but I'd, I'd like to give it a go if you're ready. Yeah, anytime you're ready, Scott. Let's hit it. All right. So I know a lot of these things already, but our listeners don't. So where were you born? I was born in Oklahoma City. Yeah, just right, right. Uh, you know, in here in Oklahoma City, you know, the majority of my, my life, you know, of course, lived in Charlotte a couple of years and, and uh, you know, spent the last 20 years working and living part time, you know, back and forth in California. Um, but uh, but yeah, Oklahoma City's been pretty much my home my entire life. I got you. So what was it like growing up in Oklahoma City? I was born in South Dakota, but came down here when I was about in the third grade. So I know what it's like, but put into words what it's like for you to grow up here. You know, it was um, it wasn't really the, the racing hotbed. But, you know, back when I was growing up there, it, you know, there was quite a lot of racing going on everywhere. You know, I mean, I was surprised that even in Oklahoma, there was a couple of different racetracks around in and around Oklahoma City. You know, I grew up at a racetrack in Yukon, Oklahoma, that's famous mainly, you know, because Garth Brooks is from Yukon, Oklahoma, but um, just a small town, you know, suburb of Oklahoma City. And there were two or three racetracks up around Tulsa, a place called De Anza and Claremore. And in Wichita, Kansas, there was a track called Jeeps that we used to go up to. And down in Texas, there was Ross Downs and Baytown. Mm-hmm. And there were yep. different different racetracks, you, you know. Uh, you know, they, had, they ran races. We ran. I went out and rode races in Lubbock and uh, Amarillo. And so, yeah, there was there was a lot of racing going on back then. Um, so even though it wasn't, you know, California was a real 
hotbed, uh, you know, for racing back when I was growing up. Um, you know, it was, it was still a lot of racing going on around here and, and a lot of good, you know, surprisingly you look back and I look back to the guys that I, uh, grew up racing with starting off with Terry Poovey and, and Freddie Spencer and Bubba Schobert and David Bradley, myself, my brother, David, you know, all the guys, Mike kid, um, there was a lot, you know, national winners, Bubba Rush and Daryl Hurst and mm-hmm. guys that, that, you know, that we raced with every weekend as kids. You know, some of those guys were pros already. Randy Cleek, you know, Rory Simmons, right. Scott Adams. You know, there was there was a lot, you know, quite a lot of racing going on, and it produced a lot of, you know, a lot of decent racers from this area. Well, how did you first get into motorcycles? You, you told us about the tracks that are around here and the guys you race against, but um, you're, you're, you weren't just born into motorcycle racing. How'd you first get involved? Yeah, not, not at all. Really. You know, my parents, you know, were just working people and, and, uh, I had a cousin that was a few years older than me, four or five years older. And my dad's sister asked my dad to help her son, my cousin get a motorcycle so that he, he was 14 or so. And I was like eight or nine, but he was old enough to ride on the street. And so he needed a, a bike that he could ride on the street. So I got to go along as we went to buy my cousin, this motorcycle and so I got to go in the motorcycle shop kind of for the first time and, and, uh, and look around and, you know, I was like in awe of all these motorcycles and all the shiny parts and all the stuff. And of course we, me and my brother, David, we were on our bicycles all the time at that point. But, um, this cousin, I kind of looked up to because I thought he was kind of cool. He was older and, uh, you know, had a motorcycle after that, you know? And so I, kind of thought that was cool. And so I wasn't much after that, maybe a month or two, I started putting a lot of pressure, a lot of heat on my mom and dad to, uh, to get me, uh, and my brother a mini bike. And so we back at, back then there was a store that's no longer around called Montgomery wards that had little three horsepower Briggs and Stratton mini bikes, you know, in the automotive department. And so it was, I think it was 96, I think it was 96 bucks, you know, it was big money. And, right. um, <laughs> yeah. And so, so we, you know, I talked them into getting me, uh, getting David and I one of those. We had to share one. We couldn't afford two, so we had to get one and share it. So that's what we did, and and we got that. And it, it wasn't, um, you know, much longer. Uh, six months after we got that thing, uh, maybe a year, the movie On Any Sunday came out, and and when that movie came out, I knew nothing about uh, any kind of organized racing or anything for motorcycles. I didn't, I was t- nine, 10 years old and didn't know anything about it. You know, I just knew that I thought motorcycles were cool and I loved riding, uh, you know, and having that kind of freedom as a kid to get on my mini bike and go ride in the fields around my house. And so once, you know, once I saw that movie and realized there was organized racing, it made me aware of it, made me aware of the fact that Myrtle Lawwell could buy a house and, you know, in Marin County in Tiburon, California, uh, on money he made race. And I was like, well, hell, I'm never going to work ever in my life. I'm going to be a motorcycle racer. <laughs> there you go. You know, so, so that, that set me on this path of, you know, a bunch of dominoes fell then that, you know, a couple of months after that movie came out and I saw that we were at the fair, the state fair of Oklahoma. And it just mm-hmm. so happened that in 1970, uh, they ran a national, uh, in October during the state fair. And so, you know, I'm aware that there's racing now and I hear these motorcycles and we're at the fair and I, you know, me and my brother, we had to, uh, you know, I think we kicked and screamed and threw fits, you know, to get him to, 
to because you had to pay a little extra after you're already in the fair. You had to pay a little extra to get into the motorcycle race. So uh-huh. uh, he, you know, he knew he cared nothing about that. But me and David, we wanted to go, so we talked him into it and and uh, got to get you know Gene Romero's autograph and Dave Aldane is all the Dick Mann and Jim Rice, all the guys that I had just seen on the movie on any Sunday. And I remember after the races, you know, my daddy's like, okay, can we go? And I said, yeah, we can go down to the pits so I can get some autographs. Yeah. You know? And, uh, so we go down there and I, and I tell my dad, you know, I said, this is, uh, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. And he says, you don't want to do this. He said, look at those guys. You know, he said, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, sleeping in their vans. They, you know, they got dirt under their fingernails. They, you know, this is no life. I was like, oh yeah, that looks awesome. I, that's what I want to do, you know? And, yep. and, uh, it's my, you know, back then, back then there wasn't any motor homes or anything. It was these little, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies, you know, there was these guys just traveling in their little vans, had a little cot in the back of their van, you know, with a sleeping bag. And, and man, I thought that looked awesome. And your brother did too. So you guys both started racing at the same time. Did you share the same bike when you started racing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I started racing, and, and David was just riding, uh, you know, when we'd ride during the week and everything. And I can, you know, I I was probably the one most sort of, I guess, aggressive or, uh, you know, passionate about getting a race bike. You know, David loved riding and everything, but he just, uh, you know, I was the one that was a little older than him, and so I was trying to figure out ways to make money to buy a race bike. And I, and I bought a race bike and, and, uh, David and I were, you know, we, we were 10 and a half months apart. We kidded my mom, you know, that we were nine months and 15 minutes apart. Um, <laughs> but, but we were 10 and a half months apart, but, um, you know, we fought, uh, like, I guess like siblings, like brothers do. And, and, uh, I was racing and, uh, and had been riding, I think the, uh, the 125 amateur class, I got a, I bought a Suzuki from a guy in Tulsa that we all knew named Corky story. And, um, I was racing that and, and, uh, David and I, he, he was messing with me and I went to take a swing at him and he ducked his head and I punched him right in the top of the head and I broke a <laughs> bone in my hand. So, wow. so the race was that week. And so I was more mad at him because I couldn't race that week than anything else, uh-huh. you know, but but being that we were brothers and everything, um, I said, well, you know, why don't you race my bike this week? And, uh, so I couldn't, I couldn't ride for about four weeks while my hand healed and, uh, and he won all four weeks. So, wow. so, and that, that was a 125, 125 amateur class. So when, you know, my hand healed up, I didn't have the heart to not let him race anymore after he won all them races. So he, he would ride it in 125 amateur class and pull around and, you know, at the end of his race and I'd, you know, at the pit entrance and I'd jump on and I'd go ride the 125 expert race after that. So that first year, you know, we, we shared a bike until, till finally, you know, he's, he was starting to make a little money. Uh, he could, you know, got fast enough to ride the expert class. And so we were able to actually buy another bike from quirky story for him. So, wow. wow. Man, that that's awesome. I love that stuff. So, uh, do you have a favorite memory of you racing when you were a kid? I mean, what do you have a favorite race? Um, as a kid, you know, um, you know, my first race, you know, I, I think every kid, um, you know, it's funny how that's, it's been so long ago, uh, nearly 50 years ago, in my case, I almost hate to, to say that, but, um, you know, I remember, you know, pulling to the line and 
needing to go to the, to the bathroom so bad. I needed to pee so bad. And, uh, you know, and, and I think probably, you know, most of the guys I raced with, you know, when they think back to uh-huh. their first race, had that same experience, you know, I don't know what it is about getting out there that, you know, but, but, um, as soon as the, uh, you know, the, the guy threw the flag back then, we didn't have lights to start the races. It was all flags, but uh-huh. as soon as, um, the starter threw the flag, you know, I, I was totally in race mode and, and, uh, you know, the thing I remember about it was um, in the mini bike class, the 70 class they had back then, um, they they gave trophies, handed trophies out to the first three places. And the first race, uh, another story about how I got to race the very first time, it was on a Yamaha Mini Enduro, but I, I finished fourth. And so I didn't get a trophy, and I was so disappointed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um of course, my mom and, you know, everybody thought I did great to get fourth in my very first race. But um, they uh, and so the, the next week I got to ride the same bike again. Uh, the kid that I was riding his motorcycle was visiting his grandmother in Colorado for two weeks. And so his dad let me ride his bike, uh, Yamaha Mini Enduro, those those two weekends. And so, uh, you know, the next week, man, I was determined uh, to, you know, I wanted that third so bad, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, at least, you know, I wanted a trophy and, um, I, uh, I got the whole shot in the main event and led, uh, for, for two or three laps and, uh, the two hot shots in the class, the guy that I, you know, grew up to be friends with and actually traveled with when I was a novice named Phil Sire, he was on an Indian, which was a 75 CC Indian. And, Another kid, Terry Roberts, who rode for Dennis Latimer, who who built a lot of my race bikes later on down right. the line. Um, he had a little Yamaha Mini Enduro that was a rocket, and they flew by me, one on the outside of me and one on the inside of me, going down the back straightaway on about the third or fourth lap. But I was able to stay in their toe, you know, and finish mm-hmm. third and, and got a trophy. So that was, you know, those were those were big big moments, you know, in my. And you know, back in my at least my early days of racing was getting that that trophy. That was that first trophy is is uh, you know that's king. Yeah. Do you still have that trophy? Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've in fact the you know a bunch of the trophies uh, that David and I had. Uh, you know, I had so many and got tired of they were kind of falling apart. And I uh, took them to um, a trophy uh, printer. You know, trophy maker. A uh, guy that did a lot of the trophies for when we promoted the nationals here at Oklahoma City, a guy named Chan Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, I took all these trophies because they were making trophies all the time, and told him he could take them apart and use the parts, you know, to make other trophies. And but he took off all of the little plaques, yeah, that that were on the front of the trophies that said, you know, first place, hundred cc Yukon, and had the date on them or whatever. He took right. all those off of David and I's trophies, and we made a deal for my for my mom that was had it was like a you know a deal you could mount on the wall. It was a big made out you know it was, had a wood background and and had all those little plaques on it and a picture of David and I. So we a lot of those That's trophies, cool. and I kept all the big national trophies and things. But those trophies that we had as kids, you know, I I ended up you know taking apart and 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 making a making the deal that my mom could could hang on her wall. That's awesome. I actually worked for Chan at Baker Boys Screen Printing. I did the 
the trophies and 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 plaques. I, I know all about what you're talking about. So that's really cool. I didn't know that that Chan actually did that for you guys. Uh, there's a lot to talk about in your racing career. We're going to fast forward. I know you you spent a lot of time traveling all across the country as you know uh, novice, junior, and then expert. You turn expert in 1979. The rookies of '79, and you're a big part of that uh, today still. But you had national number 16 from 1980 to 2000. You got it again in in 2019 and 2020. But one more, you also were national number 74 in 2005 because your brother was 74G. So the way I figure it, and I, I went to Oklahoma schools, but the, that's 24 years you've had a national number. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's been, you know, all those, when you're in the middle of it, you don't really, you know, you don't, I don't feel even old enough to, when you know, start talking about that, like the first race being back my first race was in 72. So, you know, almost 50 wow. years ago, but right. it doesn't, uh, you're the one that started, uh, I think I made the main at, uh, <laughs> Calistoga uh-huh. back around 2014 or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, you said, you asked me what was the first year I made a national. And I said, well, when I was a rookie, I made a few nationals. And that, you know, you know of course you knew that was 79. You said, well, that was in the 70s. And, and then you made them in the 80s. And I said, yeah, in the 90s, yeah, in the O's. And I said, yeah. And, and then that year was, of course, in the teens. And, you, you know, mm-hmm. you said, can you make it to 2020? And, and I was like, no freaking way. You know, there's no <laughs> way that I can stay stay healthy enough, stay fast enough, you know, and, uh, you know, to, to be able to make a main, uh, this year in 2020 and, and extend that string of making mains to six different decades. And that doesn't even sound right because you'd think somebody would have to be about 125 <laughs> yeah, yep. to, to make it in six different decades. Right. And I'm not even 60 years old, but the way the numbers work out that, you know, it became kind of a, um, uh, an, a goal for me, you know, and a challenge to, to see if I could, to see if I could do it, you know, as I got closer, I didn't, I didn't really think I could. And then, you know, and there was years that I didn't even ride a national, you know, uh, during, since that time there, you know, and that's why I've been since 2000, since I retired from full-time racing. Um, it's just, you know, some years I would ride some years I wouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, yeah, so that that you know became sort of a, a the the goal that has motivated me to ride with ride with my buddies Jeff Todd those guys and then train with Angus and ride my motocross bike you know pretty regularly with Richard Harrison my buddy you know and all that has has kept me um, well motivated I guess is the word to 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 get out there and and see if I could accomplish that you know it's it's not. Yep. It's not that it's there's any kind of award for it or anybody's gonna uh, be overly impressed by it because uh, you know it's been that's not why I've been doing it anyway. Even if some people think it's kind of cool, I, you know the thing that's it's it's been really more just a personal challenge. So, you know I need something to that that drives me. You know to uh, to feel feel happy and fulfilled. I guess so. Right on. Well, that's what friends do is, you know, challenge each other. So I'm glad you accepted my challenge and, and hopefully the coronavirus <laughs> leaves soon enough and you can complete your challenge and then I'll have to come up with another one for you. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, you know, that's, this has been kind of a, a strange deal and, and it's kind of, you know, everything's kind of up in the air. We don't really know what's going to happen. And, and, uh, you know, it, it kind of appears at least that, you know, maybe it'll be over faster than they think. And, you know, people get back to business and, I know it'll take a while to get the, you know, the, uh, 
you know, thing, the, the engines all turning again and get everything going. But, you know, I, I, um, this, this season, because of the changes, you know, in the sport, uh, regarding the classes and how, how, you know, the, oh, the qual the way you qualify in, or, you, you know, you, you purchase a spot in the main or whatever. It's, I'm not mm-hmm. certain, uh, that, you know, that I'll actually get to, uh, uh, the opportunity to, uh, make a main event in 2020, even when we get back to racing, just because I, I, the, the way it's formatted, you know, you buy your way in for the entire season. And I, and I have, you know, no desire to race all the races. Um, I don't really want to spend the money to, to buy a spot for the whole year. Uh, and, and then to, you know, the second way that you can get in, if you don't buy in for the whole season is to apply as a wild card. And that is kind of a, more of a request to ride. Uh, and they, you know, the sanctioning body can, can decide whether or not you're going to be granted a spot uh, in the race or not. And that really doesn't appeal to me as far as the, you know, what, what motivates me to get out there and do it is to, to, uh, to, to, you know, to beat the guys that are there that day to earn my spot in the main, not be granted a spot. So I'm not saying I'm not going to ride this year, but you know, the way the format is, I can, you know, I can certainly say my motivation's not nearly as high as it's been the last two or three years. Um, because even if I could get a spot granted to me, I don't know that I'd feel like I had accomplished really what I set out to, you know, by being able to say I made a main in six different decades. So, so we'll see, you know, it's still up in the air. I'm not saying I'm not, but I'm, um, you know, given the circumstances, you know, um, there's a lot up in the air right now. And, you know, that's, that means for me, I may or may not race. I'm just not sure. All right. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. If not, maybe things will change and we'll see in 2021. You know, I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, let's well, just, right. <laughs> well, if, you know, if, you know, my, my buddies on the bicycles is Jeff and Todd and all those guys are willing to keep kicking my butt on the bicycle and yeah. Angus keeps working me out in the gym. Yeah. And Richard keeps working in you know, on all that stuff and I can stay healthy and all that stuff. You never know. Knowing you, <laughs> I figured you'd be saying not about 2021. You'd be going, Hey, can you hold out to 2030? You know, that's yeah, what I figured you'd decades. be saying. Well, I was going to wait till you made your, I was going to wait till you made your main event, then I was going to throw that out there. And, okay, okay. And you're not. I was going to throw something else out there. You're not the oldest guy to have uh, made a main event anymore. Our buddy Gary Ketchum is. So you've got that record to try to beat again. No, man. I, that's you know. I, I don't want that record. What are you talking about? You know. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, All I'm, right. I was I was I was happy for my buddy Gary to you know to accomplish something that he had, uh, you know. Uh, I don't know that he even, when he started racing, you know, if you know, Gary, he just loves racing. He's out there cause he loves it. Um, I don't know that he ever set out to, to, uh, to get an earn a national member. I know that is in the back of his mind, obviously, you know, and, and, you know, every time he went out and raced, he was hoping to make the main event. Obviously with that comes a national number. And so I know that he, you know, was pushing for that. And so, uh, you know, to, uh, I mean, taking, you know, the fact that I can continue to race for five different decades and have been able to make the main is one thing, um, to be a guy that, you know, was, uh, hell of a young racer, uh, you know, gave up the sport, got married, had a family, uh, you know, was away from it for 30 years and then came back 
and at an, what I would call an advanced stage, was able to make a main event, um, you know, on a, at a grand national event. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, I think that probably deserves way more credit than, than my five different decades. Uh, just that, that's amazing. So, you know, happy for him. And yeah, he can have that, that oldest, oldest okay. guy, uh, <laughs> to have a national number record. You know, I, I'd love to, he's certainly the old, you know, he's going to always have the record, I think for the oldest guy to, to earn his first national number. Uh, I don't know that there's, you know, that that'll ever happen again. So that's certainly an impressive record to, to have, but, um, yeah, uh, he, you know, he can, he can have that one. Uh, you know, I can, I can find other things to, you know, records to try to motivate me, but, uh, okay. yeah, I hope, you know, hope he gets to keep that one. I'll keep looking for, for new challenges for you. So, uh, let's get back to your Bang. career. <laughs> 10 grand national victories from 1980 to 1995, 32 top five finishes, uh, you know, you're usually one of the top privateers, whether it was in the race or in the point standings. Uh, but let's even go back to your first Grand National. You won your first National when the season used to start off. It was in the Houston Astrodome. There was a TT one night and a short track the next night. In 1980, you beat everybody, including King Kenny Roberts. So tell me about that night. Uh, that's another one of those, you know, nights that just, you know, sticks out, obviously. Um I'd been going to the Astrodome uh, since, uh, you know, about the time I started racing from about 72 uh, on uh, as a spectator, as a kid, you know, I'd go down there and uh, rode down with Dennis Latimer, whoever I could hitch a ride with. And, um, uh, you know, and so getting to finally race in the Astrodome, my rookie season, I, I finished fifth uh, in the, at the Astrodome short track. And that was, uh, my best finish, my rookie season. So, I, you know, going into my second year, uh, I was, you know, hopeful, uh, you know, hadn't, had never won a national. And of course it's one of those things that when, until you win, you don't know if you can, you know, at that level. And, mm -hmm. but I was, you know, I was certainly excited to be down there and always the first race of the year, everybody's, there's a lot of excitement that went on. Everybody's bikes were new and their leathers were new and, it was underneath the lights and, you know, there was 30, 40,000 people, uh, at those, those races back then. And, and so there was, you know, there's a lot of electricity in the air. And so, uh, yeah, I got, you know, got off the line probably fifth or so. Uh, I think I won my heat, but, uh, didn't get a real good start. And Kenny got off and he was in the lead and he'd won the TT the night before. And there was only a couple guys, you know, in the history of the sport that had, had, had ever doubled up, won the TT on the short track uh, at, uh, at Houston. I think Steve Eklund did it, and Kenny, Kenny wanted to do it, and I know in the worst way, and uh, mm -hmm. he won the TT the night before, and, uh, and so he had his head down. He got out in front, and I was able to work my way up to second, and it uh, took me a few laps, you know, to, to get second, and then took me a couple laps to, um, to reel him in once I got to second, but then he and I just went back and forth we were changing the lead you know in every corner you know and sometimes more than once in the corner because he was running a different line than me and so he would run in i'd run in and he'd run in down underneath me but he couldn't get his bike load and he'd go up high and i'd go underneath him and then he'd square it and turn it and come back out and pass me you know coming off the corner and it was you know we it was like a, a game of chess you know we were just back and forth trying to get the right line and block the other guy and you know, I'd get underneath him and he'd have it turned and I'd get, you know, and I finally got myself positioned one time. Uh, I don't think Kenny 
uh, was shifting, and uh, and I was, and so I got in underneath him one time, and and uh, got him to where he had to, to he you know I wouldn't call it a block pass, but where he was going up high and squaring it and turning it and coming down, uh, you know I was there, you know I was underneath him, I was able to run a lower tighter line and. He had to, you know, just let off the gas a little bit, and I was, you know, uh, on my line and on the gas, and I was able to finally, uh, about two laps from the end, was able to get away from him. And I think on the last lap, actually, uh, Kenny made a mistake, and Mickey Fay, who had been running third, was able to get by Kenny and uh, and get second. But, um, yeah, you know, going across the line, I've got actually my uh, profile picture on Facebook is a picture that somebody posted. I don't even know whose it was. But somebody posted uh, me going across the line, and and Phil Dyson, the flagman that used to flag mm-hmm. at Ross Downs, and place that you know, and always flagged at Houston. He was the district starter. Um, I think he had a boot. Uh, he you know hurt his foot or something. Had a boot on his foot. But anyway, there's uh, I kind of remember these funny little things. But he um, <laughs> you know I've got that picture of going across the line, and everybody in the you know you see everybody in the crowd you know standing up with their arms up you know as I went across the the finish line so it was kind of a cool cool uh you know experience and, and one that certainly stands out but there's a lot of guys that won a Houston national that never won another national there's a guy named Mike Haney uh Daryl Hurst Bubba Rush you know there's a bunch of guys that just won Houston and and you know I was uh you know I know how those guys feel about it it's like you know, they'd love to have won more, I'm sure, but winning a Houston right. Nationals, you know, it was kind of like, hey, if if you just won one National, that would be that would be it. You know, I mean, that right. it was right. that was good enough. So, so it was pretty cool. That's, cool. That's cool. Let's fast forward to June 20th, 1980, the same year. You go up to Santa Fe, which you'd rode a lot, you know, coming through the ranks, and you go up there. And if I'm not mistaken, you lapped up to third or fourth place that night in winning your second Grand National. Tell me about that night, and it was an important night to you. So talk talk through that night for me. Yeah, uh, you know the Houston win in February uh, was the first national win of my career. Uh, David, my brother, had uh, finished second, I think, behind Steve Eklund in what they called the trophy main back then, which later became the last chance qualifier. It was uh, uh, the race, you know, the, uh, for the top 12 guys that didn't make the main event. But that night, uh, he had a big hand, David did, and, and me went in Houston. At that time, we were like Carlisle test riders. Carlisle had decided to get involved in, in making dirt track tires and instead of just the Carlisle Universal that we all are familiar with. They decided to make a dirt track tire similar to Goodyear's that had the kind of the rectangular knobs as opposed to the universal style tire, which had a bunch of cuts and grooves and stuff in it. And so mm-hmm. we were sort of the, the guinea pigs. Well, I was the national number and knew, you know, the year before when I'd gotten a fifth that I used the Carlisle Universal and a Pirelli front tire. So David at Houston, Carlisle, we talked about it and we had a little conference and David was going to test this their their new RAX is what their tire was. And, uh, he went out and practiced and, and after practice, we had a little conference with them and between David and I, and David said, wow, it's, you know, the rear tires working so good. You know, the only problem having is kind of pushing the front just a little bit. So based on David's recommendation, I ended up putting that tire on and consequently that's what I won 
on that night. So mm. anyway, uh, go fast forward a little further. A few weeks later, uh, I had appendicitis attack. I had to have my appendix taken out. So I, I missed the first couple of races after that it was like the San Jose mile. And David went on out. I forget who he, who it was that he went out with, but, uh, David didn't have a um, a 750, but Sonny Burris, the year before, had been so impressed with David, he had let David ride his Triumph at uh, at Oklahoma City at the regional when David was a junior. And then now that David was a rookie expert, Sonny had a Harley and uh, had decided to retire from racing himself. And so he said David could ride his bike at uh, at Sacramento and all the West Coast races. So David went on out. Uh, hitched a ride with somebody. Like I said, I wish I could remember, but, and, uh, and I missed San Jose and, but, um, was able to come out for the last, uh, race on the West coast, which, uh, I think I missed Sacramento too, but before one of those races or between, in between or whatever, they had the, uh, short track that they ran the cow palace in San Francisco. And so I got to go out there and ride that and rode that and ended up winning that. And it was the first race back since I'd had my, my appendix taken out. And then we went down to Ascot, and uh, I don't think David or I either one uh, made the main event. Sonny's bike, he was trying a, a experimental belt drive instead of the chain drive that's on the typical Harley that goes from the, the primary sprocket to in, around the clutch. But he had a belt drive, and it had failed, and so he wanted to go back home. And so David ended up you know, borrowing another guy's bike, Don Tortorelli, who his son, Donnie Tortorelli, had, had been killed at Tulare uh, a year earlier. Uh, David rode his bike there at Ascot, and David and I ended up racing together. I've got pictures of Ascot that night. Um, neither one of us, though. I think we got third and fourth or something in the semi and didn't make the main event. The next race was the Louisville Half Mile, and, and uh, Don Tortorelli wasn't going to go back east, so David found another ride, uh, a guy named Jim Martz, who uh, had a Harley Davidson that had originally been Porky Keener's, and a guy had uh, uh, filed a, a claim on it, you know, at one of the events and, and gotten the engine. He claimed it. And uh, so David rode Jim's bike at uh, Louisville, and um, you know the story, and probably most of, most of the listeners might uh, as well, but they don't, uh, you know, a drunken spectator managed to, to find his way over the, the fence and walked out on the racetrack in the heat race, and I was in the same heat. It was uh, at the end of the first lap, and I was leading. David was kind of mid-pack, kind of where everybody was bunched together because it was on the first lap, and everybody was still mm-hmm. real tightly packed. And I came out of the corner, and, and all of a sudden I see this guy standing there, and I just kind of like flinched to the right just a little bit and just missed the guy. And, and uh, you know, remember thinking, you know, wow, I hope everybody gets by him, you know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we went on past the start finish line. And by the time, you know, I'm going down into turn one, the, you know, the, the corner workers are waving the, the, the yellow flags and ambulance flags and stuff. And so, you know, I start looking back for David and of course he's the only one that I don't, don't see. And so I ride on around and, and as it turned out, you know, David had, had uh, tried to lay the bike down um, you know, video camera footage showed that David tried to lay the bike down and got the bike kind of laid down, but, um, you know, hit the spectator. He was a big, you know, obese, uh, guy, 300 pounds or something. And, uh, the impact ruptured David's aorta and he, you know, bled to death internally basically. And so, you know, the spectator that he hit actually lived, uh, 
for about a month after that, from what I understand, and then he ultimately passed away as well. But at that at that time, you know, I had to call my parents and and kind of let them know what had happened. And you know, my my mom's my mom's natural response was, you know, please promise me you'll never race again. And that was, you know, of course, at that point, you know, while I was, uh, I think I was still in the hospital uh, there with David and uh, Delton Teicher, the guy from Viper Racing Frames that sponsored David and I. And I said, you know, I I said, no, I, you know, I won't ever race again. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have any desire to even think about it. So, um, but I got, I got home um, and, uh, you know, we had David's funeral. And of course, I don't know, there's probably a couple thousand people there. And, um, it was, yeah, you know, just everybody from the race world was there. I remember, you know, people from RJ Reynolds who sponsored the series being there, you know, coming to that, um, Lynn Griffiths, who was Miss, Miss Winston at the time, you know, she came and actually stayed with our family for a few days. You know, we, people were really amazing, you know, and, and of course that just shows how close the, the racing family is and, and really is what, you know, probably drew me back to it, you know? Uh, yeah. and I think my mom, you know, after I stayed home and missed a couple of weeks, um, uh, you know, unfortunately the next week at Harrington, there was a national Steve Dollefeld, another racer from Illinois was killed, uh, the following week after David, I wasn't wow. there, but, um, yeah, uh, another sad weekend at the races. And, but, um, you know, after a, a couple of weeks, my mom said to me, you know, came and I was just sitting at home doing nothing and, and getting more and more depressed. I was already depressed, of course. And, and, uh, and she said, I know I asked you not to race, but it's your life. And I, you know, I want you to do what you want to do. And, um, you know, I, I told her, I said, you know, I don't, at, at that point, you know, anybody that's, uh, that's gone through something like that, I'm sure understand you're, you're sort of numb, you know, the things that were important to you before and the things that drove you and, you know, that you're passionate about, you kind of, you know, there's none of that. You don't really experience any of that. You don't have any of that. You are like, like I said, somewhat numb. And so that's what I was. And I, so I told my mom, I said, I don't, I don't really know if I want to race again. You know, I don't really know. And I told her, I said, after thinking about it, I said, you know, I think, but if I get on back on a motorcycle, I'll know, you know, yep. if, if I want to keep racing or not, but I won't know until I get back on. And so, you know, backing up a few months back to the win at Houston earlier that year, uh, I didn't have a, a TT bike. Um, you know, I'd put all my money in my, my Harley and, and, uh, so I had to borrow a bike. And so the night when Kenny won the TT the night before I made the national, but it was on a borrowed Honda from Bill Snyder up in Kansas. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. so when I won, when I, I, you know, I made the national in the TT and ended up falling down and. And, uh, there's, you know, funny picture of Scotty Parker running over me on his Harley. Uh, he made the main event. He was behind me when I fell and ran, ran over my bike, but, or Bill's bike. Uh, but when I won the next night, Kenny Clark from Yamaha said, Hey, you ain't riding no dang Honda again, you know, uh, <laughs> on a TT. And so he, he said, I'm sending you a new, you know, TT 500 Yamaha, you know, so we had been, you know, leading, you know, after Houston, he did what, exactly what he said. He sent me the bike and we had been building, um, uh, when I say we, uh, Viper frames, you know, Delton Teicher and, and, uh, Jim Dewar and Barbara from Megacycle Cams and a guy named Harry Lilly, 
uh, were all involved in, in building this, this 500 that, uh, that I needed for TTs. And we had it pretty well done. And the, the race that was coming up um, after my mom had come and talked to me was the Santa Fe TT. And so I called Delton and I said, Hey, w- you know, w- would you help me get, you know, finish the, the, the TT 500. And, you know, he, of course he, he was happy to, to do it. And, and, uh, we, so we took it, uh, got it together and, uh, went, went to Santa Fe and, you know, really with no expectations of, uh, you know, I don't think anybody, uh, including myself or anybody else, I was on a brand new bike. Um, you know, I was a, I was a, a decent TT rider. I'd made the, the Houston TT main event. Um, but, um, you know, after, you know, what had happened and everything, I don't think anybody really had any expectations, uh, for, you know, for me to really do that much. And, um, so that, that night is another one of those things that I remember, you know, Oh, too well, uh, Mickey Fay and, and Jeff Haney were Honda teammates and they were both really good TT riders and they happened to be in my heat race. And um, they couldn't get through the first turn without knocking each other off. They were both so focused on beating each other uh, that they kept knocking each other off. So the first start, I get the whole shot, you know, which I'm like thinking, wow, you know, I got the whole shot. You know, I'm like I said, I'm not really even in the the right mind to be racing. You know, I'm kind of just numb and just kind of out there Mm -hmm. going through the motions and I get the whole shot, you know, and. And, and Mickey and Jeff run into each other and, and they have a red flag cause they knock each other off. And, and so I think, Oh, great. You know, so I, they have a second start and I get the whole shot and we go in the first corner and they knock each other off again, <laughs> you know? And so they have a red flag, you know, and I'm going, wow, you know, uh-huh. two starts in a row, I got the whole shot. And, um, I said, can happen, you know, a third time. So third right. time whole shot whole shot. I run away with the heat. Well, um, you know, I, I still, even after that, I was, you know, I'd been sitting at home for nearly a month. Um, I didn't, you know, it was a TT race, a little more physical, uh, you know, wasn't in the best shape physically, wasn't in the best shape mentally. And, uh, but, um, uh, got the whole shot in the main event and just ran away, just, you know, I, I lapped up the third place, as uh, as I recall, and that was second and third were Steve Eklund and Ricky Graham, you know, two of the best TT riders ever, you know, and, and uh, I, they were the only ones that I didn't lap. But I remember Mike Kidd, who was in the main event, his bike had broke or he had fallen down one or the other. And, and I remember uh, Mike you know, in the infield where he was kind of pinned in, he couldn't cross the tra- track with his bike and couldn't, you know, get to the pits the way Santa Fe was laid out. So he just kind of had to s- sit there until the mm-hmm. race was over. And he was, you know, as I would come by, he would throw his arms wide open. Like, you know, you've got a huge lead. And right. then he, and then he started yell Then he started yelling at me when I would go by, <laughs> slow down, slow down. Slow, yeah. And he's, you know, and he's, He's pretty, you know, the, the next lap, he's jumping up and down and trying to, you know, hold his arms down, like, you know, slow down, you know, um, and, you know, and I was, you know, the, the crazy thing about it all was that I was not, uh, I don't know, how do you say this without sounding, sounding kind of weird, uh, you know, was, you know, you hear people talk about out of body experience. I was not really <laughs> thinking I was, I was just, what was happening was just happening without, 
me really being in charge of it. Yeah. I was um, sitting on the motorcycle and riding it, but I wasn't, you know, it was like I couldn't understand what, what Mike was talking about. I never looked back, um, but I wasn't riding hard. I wasn't breathing hard. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't, it just all happened. Yeah. And I ended up winning, winning that race, uh, you know, and, and, um, and which sort of cemented my decision that, you know, with my mom actually said she would go with me to that race and did, she flew up there and she was with me, uh, when I won that night. And of course I think she knew that that meant that, you know, I was going to keep racing and, and I, you know, and I felt like it was certainly a sign, you know, um, David, you know, telling me, Hey, you know, dude, this is, this is what you need to be doing. And of course, then, you know, with that sign from God and David and, you know, I mean, just, you know, couldn't be any more sure that's what I was supposed to do. I didn't, then I didn't win another national for five years and, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and thought, you know, what the hell kind of sign was that? You know, where, where were, you know, where were you <laughs> yeah. trying to tell me? But, yeah. you know, I, uh, I, you know, it all worked out, you know, it all, it, it all worked out. So. Yeah, that's quite a story. And, and I know it's kind of hard to talk about some of that stuff. I, I'm right there with you. I've been through some of that myself, but um, my hat's off to you for, you know, lapping up to third place. That's just incredible. Uh, let's, let's fast forward some, you won some races, like you said, five years later, 1990, you won the last ever grand national at Ascot 1991, I think was your best year. I know you, you've been around the block a little bit. Uh, you've been to all these tracks now, uh, but you went three grand nationals, including Oklahoma city half mile, which you happen to be the promoter. And if I remember right, you not only won the main, but you were fast time. You won the heat, won the camel challenge and the main event. And then, so you had your cake and you ate it too. And I think everybody that was helping out with that race <laughs> shoved this great big old cake in your face. Is that how, is that how you recall it? Yeah. What, uh, what, what happened was the week before. Uh, so yeah, I did 91. I, I did I won three nationals. I won Daytona early in the year and won Oklahoma city and won rapid city a couple of weeks after Oklahoma city. And, and prior to Oklahoma city was the Hagerstown half mile. And I led it, uh, for the first like 16 of 20 laps back then they were running 20 lap main and, mm-hmm. and, uh, Larry Pegram had, had, you know, was running second and, he, you know, been hunting around, hunting around, hunting around, following me and finally found a, you know, got just a little bit better line. And he passed me right, you know, near the end and, uh, or, you know, almost won that one. But yeah, anyway, that was a, a good season for me. But, uh, during the interview, uh, that I did with, uh, at that time, ESPN was, was airing the races on ESPN and Dave Despain was of course doing all of the, the commentary and, Dave was interviewing me, uh, of course, because I was having a good season, but also the, the next race was the Oklahoma city half mile. And so he was doing a little, you know, getting some information about that. And, uh, you know, he asked me, you know, what I expected as far as racing in my hometown for the first time in 15 years and, you know, being a first time promoter, a lot of big first, you know, coming in and, uh, you know, what did I, what did I hope for? You know, what did I expect and what did I hope for? And I said, well, I don't know if you can have your cake and eat it too, but I'd love to, you know, fill the grandstands, uh, and then win the race. And so my partner in the race promotion, Keith Brewer, Keith, he heard that he watched the ESPN show and he heard that little interview. And so he, unbeknownst to me, he, he has a cake made. 
mm-hmm. big, you know, cake and it says camel, camel pro Oklahoma city on it or whatever. And, and so it's rare, you know, you know, Scotty, uh, it's rare that things ever go as good as you could have ever hoped. Mm-hmm. And that night, you know, in Oklahoma city, everything went as good or better than I could hope. And there was, you know, I certainly didn't, uh, I hope to do well, you know, hope to win, felt confident and all that. But, uh, Keith, he, he, he was more confident than me. So confident that I was going to get my cake and eat it too. He had a cake made. Uh-huh. So when I win the main, when I win the main event, uh, Dave, of course, is doing the post-race interview and everything. And he says, well, we, you know, boy, you guys just did a great job here at Oklahoma city. I, you know, I'm going to, uh, hand the mic off over to your uh, co-promoter, Keith Brewer. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, he doesn't usually do that. And uh-huh. he hands, hands the mic, he hands the mic to Keith and Keith says, well, he says, I, I, um, I watched Ronnie's interview last week when he's at Hagerstown and I heard him, you know, say that he didn't know if he could have his cake and eat it too. But he said, I was so certain. He said that, that we were going to pack these stands and Ronnie was going to win this race. He said, I had a cake made. And about that time, Paige Thomas, uh, who was Miss Camel at the time, uh, you know, the ambassador for R.J. Reynolds, uh, she walks up onto the podium and the cake, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And, you know, and so she kind of holds it up there so that I can look at it. And just about the time I, you know, stretch my neck out to look at the cake, she goes, wham, stuffs it right in my face. <laughs> yep. And and then, you know, there's there's pictures, you know, you've probably seen them where she's, you know, she's running off the stage in high heels, yep. um, you know, to get away, you know, afraid that I'm, I'm going to come after her. But, uh, yeah, no, it was all in great fun. And, yeah, just, just you know, added to what was already, you know, a spectacular evening. You know, I've had, a, I've been fortunate enough to be blessed to have a couple of times in my life when, when things have gone, gone like that, uh, you know, uh, you know, couldn't have worked out better, but that was certainly, certainly one of them. And, the, you know, that, that cake just kind of capped it all off uh, getting to have my cake and eat it too. So. Yeah, that was that was one heck of a night. I remember it like it was yesterday too. And and my dad and and I think my grandparents were corner fly again. Me and my dad helped out with hay bales, and I know my dad ran around there and and did the 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 pellets of uh, stuff to keep the track wet. I can't I can't calcium yeah. chloride, I guess. And you know there, it was just a big deal, and a bunch of people came together and made that event happen. And I know it was you and Keith Brewer's race, but man, that was one heck of a night. I'll never forget it. So let's fast forward a little bit further. You retired from full time racing in 1999. Why did you decide to step away? Well, you know, I've been 23 seasons of, of being on the road, basically 23 seasons of being out, uh, racing, you know, every week there was a race, um, uh, hanging your butt out, I guess, you know, every week to make a living. And so it just got to the point where, um, you know, I recognize that as much as I loved being on the motorcycle, I love the competition that just going out and doing it every week, uh, I just got burnt out on it. And, um, and at least initially, you know, when I, when I retired at the end of 99, I, I didn't really, I mean, I kind of missed it, but you know, I just thought, well, it was time, you know, I, I was at that time, I was 39 years old and I just thought, well, that's, that's been a good long career. That's, that's long enough. I don't really need to race anymore. Um, but 
you know, uh, in 2004, I continued to, you know, after, after I quit racing, I, I thought, Oh, this would be great. I can quit working out. I can quit training. I can quit doing all the things that, that I did to stay in shape for racing, but found out real quickly that no, I was addicted to that stuff. That's why I'm still out with Jeff and Todd and all my buddies out still riding Timmy, all these guys riding bicycles now because it's an addiction that I acquired from 23 years of trying to stay in shape for racing. So I, I continue to do those things. I continue to ride my motocross bike, continue to, to ride bicycles and go to the gym and work out and all the things. And so in 2004, uh, I get a call from Terry Poovey and he says, RJ, he says, I got a really good road tax and I sure would like it. I got two of them. I'm going to ride one. He says, and I sure would like it if you come down and ride the other one. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I just couldn't turn my old buddy, Terry, Terry down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Freddie Debrick came down and pitted for me and, and I went, to, you know, I loved racing at Daytona. I loved the short track down there. I had a lot of success down there. I think, uh, you know, Terry was the only guy, you know, over the years, there's a book about the Daytona short track. I think Terry was the only one. I think he won one more, uh, main event down there than, than my, myself, you know? So, um, you know, it was fun, fun, you know, for Terry to have me down there and it was fun for me. And, and it gave me an opportunity since I didn't have a national number. Uh, that's how, uh, in 2004, when I went to Daytona, they said, what number do you want? And I said, well, it's 74 G available. That happened to be David's rookie, mm-hmm. uh, number. And they said it was. And so I took that number. And so it became symbolically for me, it became a, uh, you know, like I said, I need things to challenge me or push me or drive me. Uh, I wanted to make the main event, um, you know, so that I could earn a national number using David's David didn't end up getting to make a national main event, his rookie season. Unfortunately, I'm sure he would have, uh, mm-hmm. uh, had he been get, you know, given the chance. But, uh, so I was, you know, really set on making the main and wound up making the main down there and getting, I think finishing 10th or something. And, um, and so that the next year I earned a national number, you mentioned early in the podcast that I was number 74 one in 2005, that was, um, that was, the, you know, getting David, uh, for me, getting David his first national number. And, uh, of course, after that, I didn't ride in 2005. I didn't ride, I don't think, in 2006 or seven. It wasn't until eight or nine that I another instance came up and I went to Springfield with uh, Paul Bergstrom and Al Bergstrom and made the national again. And, it, and it, I was using 74 and then made the national, they asked me, called and said, which national number do you want? Do you want 74 again? And I said, no, I just want to keep using 74 G. I had made the national number for David, you know, symbolically, I guess at, at Daytona. And so then, as you know, until they did away with the letters, uh, I, even though I was making main events periodically through the years, 2009, 2011, 2014, uh, 16, 17, I just would keep 74 G as my number. Uh, you know, because that was David's, that was David's number. And so, um, you know, I used that until I think 2018, uh, they, they did away with the letters and, and I hadn't made a national the year before. So I had to go to a three digit number and that's when I chose my novice number 266. Wow. Awesome stories, Ronnie. I know we could talk for hours. I got my next thing on my notes is the AMA Hall of Fame. You were inducted in 2016. 
what did that mean to you? Um, you know, 10, I won 10 nationals. You know, you look at somebody's, you know, I think of all the guys that, you know, all the guys that I looked up to and I'm proud of what I accomplished and what I did in my career, but I really didn't feel like, you know, not that I, I would, wouldn't be inducted in the hall of fame, but I, but I just didn't really expect it, I guess you'd say. And so to have been inducted, to have been voted in by my peers, you know, the people that, that are involved in the voting of it, it, you know, was, was such a great honor. And, and for my family, you know, for my parents, uh, both my parents are still living and, and, uh, you know, the, I thought if I was ever inducted in the hall of fame, it'd be, you know, much later on in life for me. And, and, uh, so the, the experience in 2016, you know, and, and the fact that both my parents are still alive and, you know, my kids got to go to it, my sister and my niece and nephew. And, and like I said, you know, it was, it was really important for me. My oldest daughter, Shaylin, kind of grew up at the racetrack and experienced that. My younger two daughters, they've only seen me really race in the last few years as I've raced actually more in the last couple of years than I did, you know, in the early first half of their lives, you know, they didn't know anything about this. In fact, if I went to a race and somebody asked for an autograph, you know, they were like, you know, what's his problem, you know, <laughs> uh, when thinking there was something wrong with the guy asking for my autograph. So, uh, -huh. uh yeah, in fact, that, that leads me, I got to tell you a real quick story here about, uh, about that and the hall of fame sort of, and how that whole thing about 2016, we were at a cheer competition. I'd take my daughters, these cheer competitions and we had to fly to him when it was in Orlando and, we were flying back and we're on the plane and the plane we have a layover and we're, we're waiting to get off the plane. And I'm sitting in the seat and, uh, Sierra, uh, my youngest daughter, she's sitting behind me and Cheyenne's back there and all the cheer moms and everybody it's on Southwest. So you just pick your seat and they're all kind of sitting behind me and I'm sitting there and this guy's waiting to go down the aisle and he's, he kind of starts looking at me and, and, uh, you know, and so I, I notice he's kind of looking at me and kind of eyeing me and, and he says, are you Ronnie Jones? And I said, um, yeah, you know, and, and so the kids, you know, Sierra's sitting behind me and her and her little friends and everything. And she kind of perks up like, who's this guy talking to my dad? And I said, yeah, you know, and he, he says, oh my gosh. And he says, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I went to San Jose mile. I used to go to Daytona. I would go to Springfield. I've, I've watched you everywhere. And you know, you're the greatest and you know, and all this stuff. And there, uh -huh. he's just going on and on and on, you know? And then finally the door opens to the plane. The guy walks down the aisle and he gets off the, he gets off the plane, you know, and we're kind of getting our stuff together and getting off. And Sierra, she looks at me and she goes, Hey dad, what was his problem? What was up? Oh, and then she goes, what was up with the, what, what was up with that guy? And I said, I said, well, sweetie, I says, when you get your dad's age, I says, you've met everybody at least once. And she kind of goes, Oh, she goes, Oh, okay. Yeah, that was, that was good. You know, that's was, okay. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> so that was that, you know? Yeah. And so anyway, uh, you know, a few months later, you know, we go to the hall of fame and there's video and, you know, Perry King did that, you know, where they do it, they do it, you know, a deal and he talks about my career and all that stuff. And so it was, you know, it was special to me, um, to have my girls, uh, you know, get to experience that, uh, to get, you know, have my parents be able to go there and, you know, still be alive and healthy enough to, to go there. And, and, uh, you know, uh, just, yeah, it was really a, a special thing for me. And in fact, we went, um, uh, to the, 
AMA, uh, me and Sierra for the Hall of Fame uh, banquet last year, and I got to take Sierra uh, to the uh, to the AMA Museum and Hall of Fame headquarters there in Pickerington, and got to find on the wall where my plaque is on the wall, and she got to have her picture made, you know, pointing at it and stuff. So it's pretty cool, uh, you know, that, and for them to for them to see that, and yeah. Cool, cool deal. Uh, thanks, everybody, whoever voted for me. I appreciate it. That's really cool. So this next question is a little bit longer, but you've raced against the best, you know, what I consider the best in the history of our sport. I'm talking, these guys right now are just champions, but Kenny Roberts, Jay Springsteen, Mike Kidd, Randy Goss, Bubba Schobert, Ricky Graham, Scotty Parker, Chris Carr, Kenny Coolbeth, Joe Kopp, Jake Johnson, Brian Smith, Jared Meese, and Briar Bauman. You've raced against all those guys and that is some stiff competition. And those are just champions during the time that you race. So my question, I guess, is what era or which era of flat track would you would you say is the most competitive? Uh, you know, this, this and this, you know, I know this will. I don't want this to sound like a slight to to the to the current riders because you know these guys are as talented as, as anybody, you know, they really are. And I, you know, I'm, I'm super impressed, you know, watching the, the, the guys today, but the, you know, just the sheer numbers, um, you know, I, I believe, um, you know, it's, it's that, w that back then that, you know, when I talk about all the, the racetracks that, uh, that I raced her at, uh, at around here, even in Oklahoma, uh, and, and what that led to in terms of numbers of say novices, you know, if you went to a race and, and, uh, went to Daytona, there was 250 novices, you know, you could win your heat, not make the main event. Uh, there was, you know, 150 juniors, there would be a hundred experts. And, you know, you, there were so many races going on and so many racers, you know, there were every national number was filled, you know, uh, which it doesn't happen today. Um, and, you know, on top of that, the reason we needed district letters, you know, was because there were so many riders around, the numbers would, were so used up that, you know, there were, you know, maybe over a thousand uh, licensed professionals around the country. There's probably several thousand at that time. And so it just, the, the, the sheer numbers, you know, of guys with talent that found their way, you know, in the sport, because you had the, the foundation was so much, so much bigger, uh, just made the, the racing, uh, you know, that much, you know, the talent level, I think that much higher. And uh, it doesn't mean that the guys, like I said, I didn't want it to come across like a slight to the, to the talent of the guys today, because they're every bit as talented, but just in sheer competitiveness because of the numbers, um, it was, you know, I think far more competitive, uh, in the, in the, you know, the late seventies, of course, when I started and, and the eighties, uh, you know, just because of that, there was, there was every guy that almost every week that I raced with in a national in the, in the late seventies and early eighties, um, won a national. You know, and it was, it was, it wasn't because it was easy to win a national. It's just because there were so many good guys that there were, uh, you know, I think Randy Goss won the championship in 1980 um, without winning a national. He might've won one, 
or something. And it was just, you know, uh, it was so tough back then because there were so many guys that could win, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, the, the, the cream would ultimately rise to the top. And that's, and that's the same thing that's happened in the sport today. But yeah, the, just, you know, the common sense tells you that the sheer numbers, you know, made the competition tougher back then. Which, which, you know, that, that makes, you know, your 10 wins even more impressive. Cause like when we talked earlier, some people will, will just in that decade or that, you know, when you were racing would just win one race and kind of disappear. You won 10 against some of the best riders in, in, in the world and in the country for sure. But, uh, so you had such an impressive career. Uh, you've talked about your racing a little bit. We've talked to a few other things, but, um, not only did you race, but you also, uh, ran a team. You you actually were a team owner. You and Lance Jones had a team, and Henry Wallace was the rider. Um, do you have any advice for Richie Morris Racing, RMR, or any singles riders out there that are looking to race against Henry this year as you spent time with him as a team owner? Well, yeah, but that was, you know, uh, we won a, you know, a couple of singles championships, I think, uh, at least one. I know uh, Henry won countless nationals. Uh, you know, they were running the Springfield National Short Track NTT cheer in Peoria, of course. You know, Henry, in my view, is, the you know, the best motocross frame singles rider that I've ever seen. You know, he's he's the best. You know, I've watched him, time, you know, race after race after race, just, you know, beat, all, beat back all the best, best riders. Uh, guys determined the beating, you know, and he's, he's got the target on him and he still always managed to, to win. Uh, you know, it was fun being involved. Uh, we were, you know, fortunately for Lance and I, we were, uh, you know, business was good and we were able to put together a program with the help of Kawasaki and monster and, and, um, you know, and, and we sponsored, you know, several different riders, uh, Johnny Murphy and Alex Wood and different people. Um, but, uh, you know, when Henry got on the bike, uh, he was, you know, he was really the difference. Uh, I know the bikes were good, but, but yeah, Henry's, Henry's going to be tough. And, and it really, I guess, comes down to, um, if there's chemistry, you know, with every team and, you know, you can put together the, what, what appears like the, the perfect combination of bikes and rider and sponsor and mechanic and everything. And it, and it not go like everybody counts on it, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I think it'll really just come down to if the team gels, you know, Henry's happy with the motorcycles, the, uh, you know, things, things come together. Well, um, sometimes you really can't forecast it. You really can't predict it. It just happens sometimes. Um, um, certainly all the elements are there. You know, Henry's there. He's got Honda motorcycles. Richie Morris has, you know, been running, uh, teams. He's got that sorted out and figured out and, they, uh, you know, I would think would be the odds on favorite, uh, for the singles championship this year, just based on Henry's experience. Um, you, you know, the only, and this is, this is thinking, you know, maybe I'm a little too much thinking like a psychologist or, or, you know, maybe I'm just thinking like a racer. Um, uh-huh. But then this probably comes from my own perspective about even everybody says, well, Ronnie, if you can't, you know, if you're not based on the format, you can't run the, the, um, the super twins class, you know, why don't you go ride the production twins class? And, you know, and it's like, and I really, and it's not a knock at all 
on that. It's just that what motivates me is making a Grand National or Super Twins now main event. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so the only thing that you know, you know, I, I I certainly don't have to question Henry's motivation when he gets on a motorcycle. He wants to win, but you know, what is his sort of underlying feeling? You know, even if it's not you know, more in his subconscious than his conscience, the, the, you know, how does he feel about going from, from the twins class back to the singles class? Um, you know, it's not a, you know, I think if it's more, it's more of a lateral move than a, than a downward move, but, you know, I just don't know how Henry views it. I guess, you know, we could ask him or maybe you can right. ask him on one of the future podcasts, but, sure. but that's, you know, I think he's, I think when he gets on a motorcycle, you know, he grits his teeth and he, he wants to win every time. So, uh, given that, like I said, I, you know, I would say that if, you know, if I was in Vegas, you know, my, the odds would be best on him, but, uh, you know, they still got to go out and run the races. Absolutely. So after racing, you also announced a few races on ESPN. And then in 2005, I got the nod to do uh, live internet, similar to what uh, Fans Choice was, but it's for live sports. And they asked me who a good uh, color commentator would be. And I said, that's Ronnie Jones. So we did that for about a year and a half until, you know, things went south on that deal. But uh, so you've done every aspect of the sport. Like we've talked about, you were a writer, uh, team owner, uh, announcer, promoter, and then you started working for the series. So out of all those things you've done, it, to me, that's every aspect of our sport. So which part of those, you know, or which one of those brings you the most joy looking back? Well, um, wow. Um, you know, each one, I guess, has its time. Um, you know, the uh, racing's, you know, uh, you know, I haven't announced for, for 50 years. Uh, I haven't, uh, <laughs> you know, worked for the sanctioning body for 50 years. I haven't, uh, you know, done live eye sports with you and Dougie fresh, mm-hmm. you know, for 50 years, but, um, you know, obviously the racing is, is, is the thing that, you know, I, can't get out of my system. You know, the being on the bike, getting out there, being on the starting line, putting your snapping your face shield shut and waiting for the lights to go green. There's just nothing that compares to that. Um, you know, from, from just my own, like what, what drives me, you know, what, what I enjoy. Um, but there are, you know, it's like at this point, you know, all of those, uh, it's more important for me right now what, you know, um, what keeps me up, um, now is not, um, you know, how to win the next race. You know, what keeps me up now is, you know, what's, what can I do to, to, to make the sport better? What can I do to, um, you know, make people, the riders make more money. What can I do to, you know, the things that, you know, I want the sport, the, the life that I've had, which uh, I'm so thankful for, uh, all of the different things that we've talked about in this conversation, uh, you know, I want, you know, for the next 50 years, I want that opportunity, even if some writers or people don't choose to do it, I want the opportunity at least for them to be there. And, you know, there was, uh, you know, when I was young, 
and and coming into the sport, uh, you know, R.J. Reynolds had gotten involved. Uh, you know, it was clear, like I said, I watched on any Sunday, and and Mert Lawwell, you know, was buying a house in in the, the highest price real estate in the world in Marin County, California. Um, there was a there was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and that's, you know, I mean, I, I probably would have raced either way up to a point, but what, what, you know, kept pulling me into it was, was even, you know, even if you never find or reach that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, it's, it's sort of perceived or there, or there is one there, you know, there's people uh, buying houses in Marin County, obviously. So there was a pot of gold there. Uh, Jim Rice lives in Portola Valley, another high priced, you know, all the, the guys in that era. So when I was looking to come into the sport, there was, there was that pot of gold There was, and it was real, you know, those guys were, were finding it and, uh, and making the most of it. And, uh, and unfortunately, you know, I, as, as much as racing, you know, you know, the exposure has, uh, seems to have proved, you know, with Indian coming to the sport in the last few years and everything, I, I, I you know, I just don't see, that pot of gold there. And so, um, you know, without that, um, you know, I fear for the future of the sport and I guess that's what keeps me up at night. So it's kind of back to your question, you know, what's most important or what was the most exciting or most fun or whatever, you know, I guess it's, you know, it goes to the different what's going on at different times, but what, you know, what I think about most these days is, is the, you know, the, the current state of in the future, of the sport because I want people to have the, this, this opportunity for the same life, uh, whether they think it's attractive or not, that, that I had, you know, I've, I've had a great life and, and back to that, that family, you know, that, that showed up at David's funeral and, and her, and what probably prompted me to, to come back to the sport, you know, was I missed, you know, my family was all going on with life and I was sitting at home. And so that's what, you know, I came back to and they, they've, you know, remained, this whole group has remained, you know, you can see it each week at the races, even now, you know, all these years mm -hmm. later. Yep. We are nearing the end. That means it's time for Graham's question. Of course, you know, Graham, I think you've known her for 40 years, if I'm not mistaken, or longer. And uh, she's a yep. huge, huge Ronnie Jones fan. She always has been, but uh, she hits a two-part question. I'm a huge Graham fan. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm a lucky yep. guy, that's for sure. So uh, it's a two-part question. How are we going to keep the pipeline open for our next generation of riders? And what would be the incentive for the up-and-comers? Well, we hit on that just a little bit. Graham's questions, you know, it's funny. She's thinking a lot, uh, you know, with her questions about, you know, where my thoughts are, the you know, these days. Um I've always felt like, and I, and I use the term, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, I think kids with very little means find their way into the NBA. They'll, you know, find a basketball or something and they'll, you know, they'll shoot hoops, all, you know, all night long or all day long or however long it takes and dribble the ball and teach themselves or whatever, because they see that, you know, LeBron James is, is living in a, in a mansion somewhere or driving a Bentley or, you know, whatever, there's, there's a pot of gold there. And so they find their way. And I think, you know, we've got to figure out how to make the pot of gold a little bit bigger uh, in the sport so that we, so kids, you know, that will say, dad, I want to race motorcycles. Well, 
you know, if there's no, if you can't afford to buy the house in Tiburon, you know, your dad's going to steer you to something else. He's going to say, no, son, let's go get some golf clubs or let's go, you know, where, where there is a pot of gold, you know, let's go play baseball or football or whatever, basketball. Um, you know, I, I hate to, to frame it in just in terms of dollars, but, but that's what drives us all. You know, that's what motivates kids these days. And so if they're looking at it, you know, like I said, I, I had this, <laughs> this crazy notion that racing motorcycles meant I never had to work again. Uh, I didn't realize how much work it was and how much, you know, I've learned about business sense and stuff, trying to budget my race program and prepare for the races each week and so on. But there, you know, there was, you know, at that time, RJ Reynolds had point funds and there was, you know, dollars to be made. And I, you know, I made good chunks of money at the end of the year and mid season and, and for camel challenges. And there was all these things. And, and I think that, you know, is, is, it's always difficult to find money to make this pot of gold larger so that we can draw more, you know, people into the sport, but somehow that has to be done. You know, we, somehow we have to figure out a way to uh, make the sport more attractive. You know, I see kids in motocross, they, you know, they think that there is pot of gold, you know, they hear about Eli Tomac having a three or $4 million contract or kids, dads, I see kids, dads in motocross, taking their kids and building them a racetrack or finding them, driving them around the country or homeschooling them or whatever, because they, they view this, that there's a pot of gold in, in motocross that we really don't offer yet in dirt track. And, um, and so I think that's, to Graham's question, you know, both parts is, you know, to see the sport grow, to bring in the new pipeline of riders, we've got to somehow, you know, there, there's, they're nearly the same purses being paid now that were being paid back in, in my early part of my career. And, and I think that's why, you know, we've got maybe uh, there might be singles, you know, and twins riders. We might have a, you know, a couple hundred licensed professionals, flat track racers, you know, in the country now where we had, you know, maybe 5,000 of them, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties, I'm not sure the numbers exactly, but if there's a pot of gold, people will find that, you know, they'll build a little racetrack in, in Yukon, Oklahoma. If there's enough kids that are looking to find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, they'll, there'll be enough demand, you know, for, to open up a little track and you'll have enough people coming out to support it. But if there's not, I don't think you can build it. I guess the point is, I don't think you can build it from the, from the amateur level. And, and you know, you couldn't build a racetrack and, and wind up advancing the pros. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It I, don't, sure does. You know, I don't think you could start out, you know, I don't think you'd start out by opening a little racetrack in every state. And then it, and then it, you know, cause people won't come out if there's, they don't see that somewhere in this deal, there's a payoff. Right. And right. so I gotcha. We're going to wrap things up That's with my... rapid fire questions. So tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you the question, are you ready? I'm ready. What's a favorite bike you've ever ridden? Oh, wow. Um, okay. wow. The RS, the RS 750 Honda, mm -hmm. uh, fit, fit me, fit my riding style. Uh, it's one I won the most nationals on. Uh, yeah, there was just, uh, for the time, you know, it, it, uh, as a privateer, uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, you could get parts for them, everything. It was just, you know, it was for me, that was the bike that, that is, you know, and, and I'm sure it's because of my success on it, that it, that it stands out. I gotcha. 
What's your favorite racetrack? Uh, when I was racing, I decided that it was whatever racetrack I was at that day was my mm -hmm. favorite track. That's the way it had to be. So that, so, cause you know, when I came into the sport, I certainly had racetracks. I was a grew up in Oklahoma where it's clay and I was good on grooves, but I sucked on cushions and, you know, places like Ascot or whatever, you know, all these different racetracks. And I decided if I was going to be a pro and I was going to be champion someday, which, you know, I didn't ever quite accomplish, but, uh, that I had to make whatever track I was at that day. Now, having said that, um, I would say Ascot and Springfield probably equally, you know, I, uh, I won two nationals at Ascot finished second there. I think four other times, you know, almost led other races, um, Springfield though, uh, because of the, just the, it's so fun to race there because the, of the closeness and how many guys could race in a pack and you could be, you know, rotating around and yeah, it was, Springfield, you know, amazing, you know, because of that. Right on. Who's your favorite flat tracker of all time? Uh, huh. I knew that's a tough one for mm, you because you, 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 you've been there forever, and I know you know all these guys. Yeah, besides, besides my brother David, um, I would have to say Kenny. You know, Kenny uh, – you know, Kenny, because I won my first national against him, uh, he was a guy that I looked up to, you know, prior to coming to the sport, uh, to be able to actually race with him was mind blowing to, you know, to beat him, to win my first national was, was something that, you know, I could never have imagined. Um, you know, and then after that, uh, you know, watching his world championships and so on, and then how he revolutionized uh, you know, the sport of road racing in Europe, you know, changed, transformed, uh, the GPs, you know, uh, he really did a lot. People probably don't realize to improve the sport for those guys over there and make them make a lot of money and all that. But, uh, and also we became friends, you know, we, we go to Sturgis every year and, and hang out and ride and, you know, and, and, uh, uh, yeah, Kenny's, Kenny's probably my, my favorite, uh, you know, and with no, a lot of guys there are a very, very close second, you know, all bunched together. But uh, yeah. so don't yeah. anybody that hears it, I hope they're not my buddies, aren't, aren't offended. <laughs> but yeah, Kenny, Kenny was just, uh, you know, he's, he's one of a kind. As, as anybody that knows him understands. All right. Who's your favorite person to go bench racing with? Um, shoot, that'd probably be you, Scotty. You know, you've, <laughs> you've, you've gotten such a, uh, you and I, you know, of course we have conversations all the time and you have a perspective, you know, getting to watch all the races like you do and call them all, you know, since you've been involved in the sport, you've gotten to, um, you know, probably, uh, have a, a, a more up close and personal feel about what's going on and what's happened and, and all that. And so it, it's kind of fun. I think when you and I get together, cause I get to bring my, my old school perspective where you're, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, knowledgeable of but still didn't, weren't there, you know, back in the early days for me. And so I get to fill in those gaps and then, you know, and you have a lot of perspective now that you actually bring to me. Cause I've been not, I'm not there every week and I'm not there every lap like you are. And so, yeah, you and I have, I think I have, you know, as much fun talking to you as anybody. Right on. That's the first time anybody's answered that question with my name. So I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> the next thing is what's the favorite thing you've ever heard from a race fan? Um, you know, I guess maybe because it's, it's so, 
current right now in my in my you know in my head um it's been really cool uh the last year or two uh i've had several people well i'll say several i've had you know more than several uh maybe hundreds uh in the last couple of years at different races come up to me and you know uh what's the just tell me how it's kind of a, it's not what I expect. It's they thank me for being out there racing, uh, for giving them, uh, hope <laughs> they're, you know, they're people my age and yeah. they go, you know, I thought I was too old to do anything. And now, you know, because of you, um, you know, I don't think that anymore. And I'm, you know, I'm feeling, you know, it, and it's been, that's been, uh, a real, real unexpected, uh, you know, thing is not so much that they're saying it's cool, but they're they're thanking me for for being out there and and for improving their lives. And I'm like, well, I don't get that. You know, it doesn't I don't? But it but it sticks out to me because they're they're coming up and saying, man, you know, it's not not so much even that they're amazed that I'm that old out there doing it. It's more like. I'm inspiring them somehow. You know, they're saying, boy, you've just inspired me. You've made me, you know, and I'm not even, I'm not even your age. I'm younger than you, but you've inspired me, you know, and all this stuff. And it's like getting old isn't so bad and all that. And I'm, I'm like, well, you know, I'm just out here having fun, but, but yeah, that's, that's kind of been surprising to me. That's pretty cool. So this next one's uh, maybe a little bit hard to come up with too, but when heading out to the races, you have to bring your what? What do you have to have? Oh, um, I think probably it would have to be uh, if I'm going if I'm going to the flat track races, you know, I have to have my gear bag. Okay. Um, all right. It's funny, even even after all these years, uh, I, you know, I still keep it. Stocked, and when I say stocked, every racer knows. You got your steel shoes, your boots, you got your helmets, your gloves. You know your tear-off shields. I mean, it's like I keep everything still, even though I never know when my last race may be. I don't, you know, I don't know from time to time, you know, what if I'm going to race again this year or next year. And that's the way it's been ever since I quit in 1999 full-time racing. But mm-hmm. my my helmet bag, uh, you know, because when you're racing every week, you keep everything together uh, so you don't forget anything. Uh, yeah. You know, when you get older, uh, it, you know, it becomes harder to stay organized and remember everything. And so the, for me, you know, peace of mind is keeping it all there together, never letting it get separated or anything. So I always keep my, I still have the same awry gear bags that I had when I was racing full time. And I keep, you know, keep, Fortunately, a ride has been great to me. Uh, you know, I, I keep, you know, current new helmets and shields and tear-offs and my gloves and, uh, you know, of course I got to have you, you know, you still shoe and boots that are that fit and and shoe, still shoe that's that, you know, is made for you and is all, you know, is all part of the deal. So yeah, for me to go out and race periodically like I do, I have to be comfortable. So I have to make sure that I got all my stuff. So that's. I got you know, it's you. not any one little thing. It's it's the whole the whole thing. You know, these these kids that I interview now, Ronnie, they always say they have to leave they have to have their cell phone. So I mean it just shows where their head is. 
<laughs> well, you know, yeah, the you know the 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 Twitter world, you know, they got they got to be able to 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 Instagram and tweet and and uh, and all that stuff and and yeah, uh, yeah I don't I you know I, I <laughs> racing for me is is probably a, a getaway from all that. that you know, I mean these these phones sure you know help in a lot of ways, but yeah, I, I got to admit for me, I enjoy being able to, to get away from them. Maybe that's what, you know, racing for me is, is the release that gets me away from all that. I don't know, but I got you. Yeah, still, uh, still fun. I got two more for you in the super twins okay. class. Who, who is the next first time champion? The next first time. Wow. First time champion. So that means not Briar or Jared. Right. That we have to take them out because they're already. Or so, Johnson. Or Smith or Johnson, right? That's yeah. that's um the next is it somebody that's 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 planning to be in the, the uh the it, twin. It could be. It could be. It could be somebody that's in this year, year or is it somebody that's yep. not in it yet? Either way, whatever you think, who who you think is going to win the uh, be the first time champion in the Super Twins class? It's up to you. Outside, outside the guys that have already been champion. Okay, um, boy, that's a that is a uh, a tough question because you're looking back, you're looking ahead. You know, it's it's going to be tough to knock off uh, Briar and and Jared and you know even you know Brian Smith. You know, hopeful of. of uh, you know, winning another championship. Uh, he's on a new brand this year. So mm-hmm. I would say, boy, um, and there, there's two or three, several guys that come to mind, but I would say Jared Vanderkoy. Really? All right. Yeah. I like that. I like yeah, that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, Jared, um, you know, is, is seems like Jared's been around for several years and, and has, but he's still a young rider. Um, you know, I, I, um, uh, you know, he's, I know that, that, um, he's been on a motorcycle that has been in development and has, um, you know, and he's shown some, some, you know, flashes of brilliance on that, on that bike, uh, you know, when it stayed under him, you know, it stayed together and stayed under him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I know that, um, uh, you know, Terry Vance and his team uh, done a great job of developing that motorcycle, but, you know, they just, they got it to the, to the point, I think where they could get it. And, and they, you know, this, this move this year to bring Ricky Howerton on board might just be the, the, the last part of the puzzle that was needed to, to get that thing over the hump. And so I really, um, you know, I think Jared, you know, uh, being on a bike that, that that bike's not not won a national with anybody on it, including Jared. Um, you know, if 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 they can have some success as a team, uh, whether it's Jared or Sammy or um, Brian, uh, and that motorcycle, you know, can win a race. Um, you know, I think Jared's still young enough. Uh, and he's consistent enough. He can, he can ride a, you know, any half mile, mile TT, whatever, you know, he's, he's capable on any racetrack. And so, yeah, I, I feel pretty, pretty good about that, that pick. Um, I like it as far as like somebody it. who could, who could, who could win the, the, be the next, 
champion that hadn't already been a champion. That's a good one. I like it. The last one we steal from Dave Despain, but uh, what are you most proud of? Um, my kids. <laughs> uh, are you talking about racing? Um, Anything in the world. Your kids is perfect. Yeah, no, my, cer- certainly, certainly my kids. Yeah, they, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, every motorcycle racer knows uh, you're, if you're going to be a racer, I don't care how nice you are and all that stuff. You've got to be a selfish SOB, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. at some, at some point, you know, and I think everybody who's married to a racer or whose kid is a racer or whatever, uh, would agree with me. But, uh, yeah, uh, in spite of being the, you know, the selfish self-centered, you know, racer that I've been my whole life. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I am, I, it doesn't go unnoticed by me how blessed I am to have three awesome kids. And so, yeah, they're, they're by far, you know, what I would say is I'm, I'm the most proud of. That's a great answer. I love it. So uh, now is your chance to say thanks to anybody. I know you raced for several different people. I had a bunch of them listed out, but, uh, and you probably have, you know, tons of sponsors and stuff like that, but who would you like to say thanks to? Oh, uh, you know, really, um, there, there's so many Scotty that if if I got started on them, you know, I'd, I'd feel like I, I left a hundred of them out when I got done. Right. Um, I've been blessed you know, uh, to, to race this long, you know, Tim Estenson comes to mind because he's most recent. He, Tim gave me the opportunity to get to 2020. You know, when you talk about what, um, you know, that when you started that at that race at Calistoga back a few years back, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he really gave me, uh, you know, the opportunity to get here, uh, when I don't know if, if I would have, uh, you know, with a job and everything else that you face, you know, I, I don't think I could have put together the program to do it uh, as the number of events you had to do went up each year to keep your license active. Um, you know, I had to do more races and, and Tim, Tim made that uh, uh, possible. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, there's been so many, you know, really the, for me that, that I guess the, I, I always want to thank all, you know, the people that support the racing, uh, you know, being involved with the charity, all the people that support the charity, the fans, basically, like I said, all the racers in the pits, everybody that, you know, that's my family. That's what, you know, that's when I sat at home after David's funeral, you know, as I missed my family and that was the racing family. You know, I had this huge family, not just my, you know, my family and, you know, at home, I, you know, had all these, these people that I look forward to seeing each week. And, and so that's, that's who I'm really, I guess, thankful um uh, for the sponsors you know i i yeah, yeah i've been blessed so many people have stepped up and and uh you know come come to my rescue at times when i was ready to quit and uh you know different you know running out of money and all that stuff but yeah it's been uh been yeah amazing i guess that's like i said why it gets back to what you know what keeps me up at night is is how do you know how do we keep this thing growing and keep it alive for the next, you know, the next 50 years at least, uh, so that other people can experience the same, same things and same sense of family and everything that I have. And so, yeah, thanks everybody.
Right on. Ronnie, I appreciate your time. I've looked up to you most of my career, and, and you've actually helped me throughout my career in, in different aspects. I worked for you at the coffee shop you owned. You helped me get hooked up with Laurel Lake Racing. I rode for them for a little while with you as a teammate, uh, not even anywhere close to to being in, deserving of being on that team. And you got me the job with Harley Davidson as a sales rep. And, and I owe a lot to you. And I definitely appreciate the time. And I love talking racing with the one and only Oklahoma's own Ronnie Jones. Number 16 in your program. Number one in your heart. There you go. Now you're talking. Oh, and I, I right. just, I got to mention that. I got to let the people know, you know, Scotty at one time was one fine barista. Now, I don't know if he tells everybody that, but boy, he could make he could whip up a mean cappuccino. Just I just want everybody to know that. So that's one of Scotty's, you know, unknown hidden talents. Just for y'all out there listening, you you got to ask him about that. There you go. Now I'm gonna have to start making coffee at the races. In between races, out the you know make a coffee and hand it out the window where I'm announcing from and stuff. So I appreciate that, Ronnie. <laughs> you got it. Hey, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Uh, take care and say hi to the girls for me. All right, Scotty. Thanks, bud. Ronnie Jones. Oh, you can do it better. Go for it. What, how do you introduce? How do you introduce Ronnie Jones? Like if I'm gonna do a starting lineup? Yeah, or yeah, like yeah. If, if Ronnie Jones is in the main event, what? if Ronnie Jones is in the main event, how do you how do you announce it? Up next, one of my very good friends. He's from Oklahoma City. It's Oklahoma Zone. Ronnie Jones, number sixteen. I don't know. You kind of put me on the spot there. Forty-nine G. What is it? He used to be uh, well. His 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 number was ninety eight G, but his brother's number was seventy four G. Seventy four G. Yeah, like he said, he ran that seventy four G for a few years after he, you know, got his national number again. But he just didn't want to get the sixteen again. I think a couple of different people used it while he was uh, when he come back to racing. But there's a few things that I didn't get to talk about. One thing is when he stopped racing flat track full time, he actually moved to Charlotte and tried racing some NASCAR. And we didn't get to elaborate on that, but his roommate, when he did that, was none other than seven-time Jimmy Johnson. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's like that that we couldn't get into because there's just, you know, I want to talk about flat track and, and, you know, keep the the conversation focused on flat track. But there's so much more to Ronnie Jones, and I've known him for such a long time that I know all, you know, I I probably don't know all the stories, but I know a lot of his background, and and he's a a great guy, man. I'm, I'm glad he took the time. Uh, to come on the podcast it was probably our longest podcast but i think it was definitely worth it absolutely worth it and uh you know you know jimmy johnson started on two wheels so like it wouldn't have been that yep. far off to, to probably mention that but yeah it's it's another one of those those guests that we have that we that we talk about that we could just literally talk for hours on end and uh not even scratch the surface so um good to hear from ronnie good to hear the stories uh i'm sure we'll we'll have more down the line too um, because like you said, there's just so much more to discuss with a guy like that. Um, so yeah, man, it's, it's, it's definitely good for somebody like me to hear, uh, somebody like that, uh, tell those stories and, and how it was back in the day. Cause I can kind of put myself in that time, which I, and I've never even seen a lot of videos on it. So, um, pretty cool, pretty cool for sure. Now, you know, now's a good time to, to get on YouTube and look up some old videos like the camel pro series and, and stuff like that. And, and you can see some of the, you know, the best of the best race against each other. And Ronnie's raced against, you know, I, I said a list of riders and those were just champions. That wasn't even including people who never win a championship who are just probably as talented, but just didn't put a whole season together to win a championship. 
and Ronnie's raced against the best, and he won 10 nationals against the best. So that, to me, is, is very impressive. And he's still an inspiration today in the in the series, so that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, man, it's another good episode. One twenty eight. What, what are you doing this weekend? Are you going? Are you going swimming? Dude, it's too cold to go swimming. Cold? You live in Florida. It's it's freaking cold here. It's like forty degrees at night. Yeah. Are, are you serious? I wouldn't shit you. You're my favorite turd. I didn't know it got that cold in Florida. It has been lately because it's been raining like crazy. It's been nuts, dude. I gotta walk, mow my lawn like every other day. Oh, it's enough out of you. <laughs> well, don't don't tip over your lawnmower then. I guess I, you know I usually say keep it on four wheels, so I'll just say don't tip over the lawnmower. How's that? That'll work. All right. There's hey, four. There's forget- four. There's four wheels on the lawnmower, so that works. Right. Yeah, keep it on all four. Yeah. Don't forget don't forget to call. Leave a message for Oliver Brindley. That's 352-639-2924. Oliver Brindley's number. So give him a call. Leave a voicemail. Uh, they're playing playing them for Oliver, and, and they definitely appreciate it, and we appreciate it too. So uh, do that in your spare time. There's not a lot else going on, right? Sure. You can call Ollie every day. <laughs> what up, Ollie? Just calling you again. I'm you sound like it. you're from Oklahoma. Kind of. Let's, let's put a bow on this thing and call it a day. Wrap it up. Right, let's do it. What? All right, tell what? Huh? Sma- smash that like button. Smash tell that like button. Friends. Tell all your friends. Give it. Give us a follow on Facebook. Yeah. Instagram. Follow. All the social media. Leave a review. Tell us how awesome we are. <laughs> no. Now you're. Now you're begging. I'm not begging. I'm just saying, if they want to tell us how awesome we are, how cool, cool your voice sounds. Yeah, not my voice. Yeah, I, I, I can picture it now. Somebody's gonna go. To Apple Podcasts or wherever SoundCloud, and they're gonna write a review that says Scotty's voice is like a god, and that's gonna be the review. Uh, in a week's time, we can go look at reviews, and that'll be there. Somebody will do that. All right, let's do it. We'll look at it. We'll Apple check it out. Podcasts in a week, we're gonna look at it, and I guarantee okay. somebody will go there and say Scotty's voice is like that of a god, or was something along those lines. It'll happen. What do you want from me? Are you trying to build me up? And, and are, do you need do you need a loan? No, I mean I'm gonna get off off the um, microphone or off the computer here and go on my phone and do that in like ten minutes. It's gonna be me, but we'll <laughs> have, we'll have that in Appreciate a week it. to look it. at. Yeah, I'll have okay, to figure good. out a new account to log into to get it done, but yeah. we'll make it happen. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, dude. All anytime. Right. That's what friends do. Hey, they else? build build each other up. Pat each other on the back. Yeah, sure. Write, write Apple reviews for each other, talking about how their cool. voice sounds like a god. Cool. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, maybe, bro. Maybe one day I'll have that Wikipedia page. Nah, I don't know how to write, write wiki code. I tried. Oh, come on. I got halfway there and was like, nope. Brad Baker's got his own. He does. He probably knows somebody smarter than me. Well, when you're a Grand National Champion, you don't have to know anybody, I That's think. right. You just do things and people are like, I gotta put that on wiki. There you go. Man, it's been a long week. We're just uh, rambling on. We are. We should end this. Let's wrap it up. Okie dokie. I'll see you next week. Peace. Later.
Carter's here. Yo. Carter? How are you, sir? Carter? Mr. 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 Carter. Carter. We do okay? (laughs) Did great, man. I loved it. I was loving it. Every second of it, dude.